0: Good morning, saints of HBC and friends and family and guests with us today. He did lay down his life so that we could be set free. And so we are here to sing of his praise, to sing what he's done. And that is the song of our soul this Easter. We are free because God has forgiven us in his son. Because of the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ, We are now raised from spiritual death to spiritual life, and that's just a down payment, a foreshadowing that one day we will be raised from our physical death to eternal life with God. Because that's true, here's the reality today. That none of us, no one can take Christianity seriously until you realize the central importance of the resurrection. There is no just giving... Uh, a passing phrase once a year to celebrate the resurrection, it is not a reality, it is the reality that we must take in and look at and be moved by, because if we don't see its central importance in our lives, then where truly is our hope going to be found? And this morning, as we look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we'll continue from last week in the most helpful and hopeful passage in the Scriptures, 1 Corinthians 15. You can turn there in the Bible that you have. If you don't have a Bible, perhaps you can find one in a seat pocket in front of you. I would invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians 15. Because this chapter validates the resurrection of Jesus Christ and it vindicates our hope. That we too will be raised with him. I took some time this week to look at surveys. So I was curious what do Americans believe about life after death? And finding one that was done in recent years by the Pew Research Group, Uh, they surveyed Americans, not any slice of a denomination, or religious belief, just the average American on the street and ask them the question, do they believe in life after death? And 73% said, yeah. Specifically, 73% said, I believe in heaven. Well, it only goes downhill from there. The same people, only 60% said they believe in hell. And then of those people that believe in heaven, 40% of them said, you don't have to believe in God to go there. And within that survey, when they did ask about the person's religious beliefs, those that said they were Christians by name who took that survey, who said, we believe in heaven, were asked whether they believe there are multiple paths to get to heaven besides Jesus Christ, and 58% of them said yes. Now, I know you can't always trust the surveys, but at the same time, it does make you wonder, When people say they believe in heaven or life after death, that's one thing, and that may be a starting point, but it's certainly not the ending point if they don't actually know what is required for one to receive eternal life. In the passage we have today in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 to 28, we will see laid out for us the facts of life after death by the only person that came back from the dead and has stayed alive forever, the Lord Jesus Christ. So if if there's anyone that we could trust, if there's any word out there that we could trust today, it's not from a survey and it's not even from a preacher, we need to know God's thoughts on it. And we find God's thoughts in His Word. So follow with me as I read 1 Corinthians 15 verse 20 through 28. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, after that those who are Christ's, it is coming. Then comes the end. When Christ hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when He has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For Christ must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For He has put all things in subjection under His feet. But when He says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that He has accepted who put all things in subjection to Him. When all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself also will be subjected to the One who subjected all things to Him, so that God may be all in all. All flesh is like grass, and all its loveliness like the flower of a field. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of God stands forever. In that reading in 1 Corinthians 15, 20-28, to 28, in, in those nine verses you get three facts about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and those three facts correlate to three hopes for you today. The facts are, and he lays them out rather simply, Christ rose, Christ will return, and Christ will reign. And for those who have trusted in Christ, then there's three hopes that come out of that. If Christ rose, then we can rise. And if Christ will return, we will rise. And when Christ reigns forever, we will live forever with Him. And that's the hope we have when we look at the resurrection, putting our faith in Him. Let's start with fact number one. We see it in those first couple verses, 20 to 22. The fact is that Christ rose, and the hope that we get from that is, at least the promise of hope, is that we can rise. Verse 20, Paul writes, But now Christ has been raised from the dead. He's not talking about now in in the time that he wrote that. 25 years after Christ rose and went back to heaven. He's saying the but now as in response to those 20 verses or 19 verses preceding this section. Where he did begin an argument for the facts of the resurrection from the positive side. Why historically, factually, that the people that were alive that he wrote this letter to at the church at Corinth can trust that Jesus Christ was the son of God lived a perfect life died a death and rose again and he was he appeared he appeared to who well from verses five through nine he appeared to hundreds of people Paul had already established in that paragraph to those skeptics of whether or not now in the time of Paul writing this the skeptics in this church he is writing to we're not necessarily saying oh you know Well, Christ, yeah, maybe He rose again from the dead in bodily form, but we're not going to rise again. As in, we just kind of turn into some um, spiritual matter. And why some of them believe that is because they had adopted a worldview of the Greeks at that time. I mean, we're, we're talking 55 A.D. All the students of philosophy going back to Plato and Aristotle, they saw a division between matter and spirit. And that matter doesn't really matter. The physical is nothing. The spiritual is everything. And their idea is, you know, after you die, you just kind of float on. You know, like some of the uh, moments in Star Wars. There's those images of Obi-Wan or whoever it might be. And they're just kind of this glowing form of particle life. And that was the prevalent worldview of people that were Hellenized from the Greek culture at the time Paul is writing this, that they may agree a lot about who Jesus was and what he did, but they would say, no, for the rest of us, we're just going to kind of be absorbed into something larger than ourselves. And so he had to say, well, if you, if you follow that logic, and that was in verses 12 to 19, if you say that we are not raised to life after death, then, then what? What's the point of believing Christ was? If we just go into nothing, what does that mean for his life and death and resurrection? So, if there is no resurrection of the body, then there is no hope for us. There, there is no promise that goes along with believing in the life and death of Jesus. If, if he was ra- risen from the dead in a bodily form and is existent forever that way, but we're not going to be that way, where's our hope? And that was his argument, and he, he listed all the reasons for the negative. If Christ has not been raised in bodily form, then our preaching is in vain. Our faith is in vain. We're false teachers. Our faith is worthless and worthless, not just now, but forever because we're still in our sin. And then he ends in verse 19 if we had hoped in Christ in this life only, we're to be pitied. If there's no life after death, if our souls and bodies don't come back together forever for, with him, then We have nothing. Even to the ethicist who would say, but you still lived a good life. Paul would say, no, we're to be pitied because we lived a good life for this life only. And this life only is just so short. So he starts with the facts of the resurrection in chapter 15. We did see Jesus in bodily form. We were witnesses of it. Not just us, hundreds of people and many of them alive that day going against the lie that was started from the time that the tomb was empty in Matthew 27 last week that we looked at. That there was a lie that was pervasive that was what? The disciples stole the body. Paul's saying that's not true. We saw the body. He appeared to all of us and our lives have been changed by him. And if none of that is true, then why are you even listening? So when he gets back to verse 20, our passage today, and says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. He is saying, I'm going to keep the main thing of the Christian faith, the main thing. And it's a plain thing. Christ has been raised from the dead dead no doubt about it and then he says something interesting the first fruits of those who are asleep christ risen from the dead is the first fruits of all who are asleep what does he mean by that we well, have to remember that paul used to be saul and saul used to be a pharisee and he was a pharisee of the pharisees in philippians 3 and in acts 22 he said i was top of the class. I was educated strictly according to the Old Testament. And if there was something that Paul remembers from his study of the Old Testament, it was this, that God demands sacrifice to atone for sin. The problem with that sacrificial system that Paul looks back and sees is that God could never actually be satisfied finally with it. You had to bring him the first and the best and continually after that. And there was no end to it. But then he says, because Christ has been raised from the dead and he's the first fruits, he is alluding back to this idea in the Old Testament. The first fruits, according to somebody that knew the Old Testament, knew Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, that spoke of the sacrificial system, this is what they would have thought of, and this is what he wants us to think of. First fruits to God means God gets the best the best of your harvest, your crops, your animals. And it's a soothing aroma that appeases His wrath. But it's not just that God would get the best sacrifice. There is a more sacrifice to come. It's just the beginning of it. But He's connecting that with Christ's resurrection to give the idea and the minds of these Christians that Christ was the first fruits. He was the best sacrifice and He's the final sacrifice. The book of Hebrews says there's no need for any sacrifice after Him. Hebrews 10.11, by this we have been sanctified. That word sanctified means we've been made perfected, purified through what? The offering of the body of Jesus once for all. The whole theme of the book of Hebrews in the New Testament is that, yeah, you have all of these Old Testament types and shadows, the temple, the tabernacle, the sacrificial system, and Christ is better than them all. Because Christ fully and finally, satisfied a holy God that demands a holy people. Hebrews ten fourteen by his offering, one offering, Jesus has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. That's what Christ being related to being the first fruits means. He is greatest in quality, but he's just the first fruits. There's a greater harvest of people to come. And that is all of those who are asleep in Christ. you See that phrase there? Whenever Paul talks about those who are asleep, and he's writing to the church, he's talking about believers in Christ. He's not talking about everybody. He, he's saying that those who are asleep, what death is for a follower of Jesus, one who has put their faith in him, it, it, it's just like the body going to sleep, but what happens to the soul? When, when our bodies get put six foot, feet under the ground, 2 Corinthians 5 8 says, absent from the body, present with the Lord. There's no divide, not for a moment. When we close our eyes for that final time, we immediately will be in the presence of God. And so he's saying, that it's just like the body is, it's, it's just going to be asleep for a while and then it's going to be woken up. Just, just like that. Just like we, our bodies, we, we go to sleep at night, we just shut down. And some of us shut down harder than others. Especially when there's three-year-old twins crying down the hall about 2 a.m. And my wife's poking me. And I'm either pretending I'm a corpse or she'll tell me the next morning, you were sleeping like a corpse. I mean, you were just catching flies. That's the imagery he's giving for the hope that a Christian has. When we die, sure, our bodies... They go under, they're just asleep, but our souls are with the Lord. And then one day we'll be together in body and soul with them again. But how can we know that? Is the argument he's pushing for. Look at verse 21. How can we know that Christ has been raised and we're going to be just like him, first fruits? Well, because something happened at the cross that reversed the curse of sin that leads to permanent death. Away from God's presence. Verse 21, because by one man came death, by another man came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. If Christ has risen, then we can rise, is his argument. Paul is showing the argument for the resurrection life by starting with humanity's sin. And he says, just as in the case of Adam, verse 21 and 22, the first man, if it was possible for one man to bring sin into the world and affect everybody, then why is it also not possible for a perfect man to come, the God-man, and if He is found perfect, if there is no sin found in Him, then there is no curse of death for Him. What is this saying? It's saying that the conclusive vindication of God accepting Christ's atoning death was Jesus' resurrection life. That's why the resurrection matters. We said that last week. If, if Jesus just merely said it was finished at the cross, but never rose from the grave again, that means death kept him. And if death kept Christ in the grave, not to rise again, then there must have been something sinful in his life because the curse would have stood over him. The vindication of the righteous, perfect, sinless life of Jesus is found in the resurrection. And so this is the hope that the Christian has. If my righteousness then comes from him, then when I die, I will be raised with that same promise of resurrection. Because my righteousness is found in him. It's not found in me. That's the good news of the gospel. The bad news is, as Paul is saying here, by one man came death. Or verse 22, as in Adam all die. Romans 5.12 says, just as through one man sin entered the world and death spread to all men because all sinned. That's where we all find ourselves today. But we have the hope that through one man could come the resurrection of the dead. He broke the curse on the cross. He was found perfect. He could fully atone. And so we can rejoice in the gospel today, can't we? That that though it was promised back to Adam in the garden in Genesis 2, in the day you eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you will die. There was a cause and effect. That if you sin, if you disobey God's commands, here's the effect. The wages of sin is death. And that has been true for every person in all history. But then here's the good news of the gospel, and it was one chapter later in Genesis 3. God curses the snake and says to the serpent, the devil, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise you on the head, meaning he shall crush you, even though you bruise him on the heel. That's the big storyline of the gospel in the Bible from cover to cover. And if you like telling that storyline that way, then think of it that way. That the great redemption story in the Bible is there were these rebels and all was lost in paradise and there was only one way to regain it and that was for a king to come and squash the chief rebel and free all those who were cursed. And you could tell the story of the gospel like that if you want. And paradise is regained. But if you want to know, but how exactly does that work? Then you have to tell the gospel like this. First Peter 2, 24, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin. There is a perfect accounting for sin according to God's gospel that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, Christ's righteousness for by his wounds, you were healed. So either way, you want to tell the story of the gospel, that there's a snake crusher who rules and reigns, and one day we will rise with him, or you can tell it in the intricate details of what happened at the cross, that Jesus is our substitution. Either way, the good news is this, verse 22, in Christ, all will be made alive. The great divide in all of the world today is not between those who don't believe in God and who do believe in God. I mean, the survey speaks for itself. You can say you believe in God and that doesn't get you to heaven. The world isn't divided between atheists and theists. Lots of theists are going to hell. Whether they believe in a false god or many gods or they are their own god. The great divide in all of humanity is between those who are found in Adam as in still cursed by sin A sinner by nature, born into this world, depraved and by choice. That we are sinners and then we choose to sin. And we would continue to do that, dead in our sins and trespasses, unless God, rich in His mercy, makes us alive in Christ. And that's the other side of it. If you're not found in Adam and found in your sin, you're found in Christ and you're found forgiven and you're given His righteousness. That's the great divide in this world. That's what we all fall into, one of those two categories. So, sure, do we have to talk about do you believe in God? But we don't just leave it believing in God. Which God is it? Which way do we get to that God? Which truth do we have to believe to know that God? What life does that God give us? And Jesus says it loud and clear. That he's the way to God and he is the truth of God and he is eternal life in God. And no one comes to God the Father except through him. That's the good news today. And that's how you are found alive in Christ. My question for you today is, is the hope for you to rise in Christ after you die because Christ is alive in you while you live? I'm not asking you this morning, are you a Christian? That's a real loaded term today. And sadly, we can't pull whatever the culture wants to stuff in the title Christian out of it. It's too late. But here's what a Christian is. It's a person who is in Christ, and Christ is in them. That's what it comes down to. Not a matter of where you live and what you do and how you vote and who you support. Those are all peripheral. The heart of a Christian is somebody that is found in the righteousness of Christ. And then, because of that, the righteousness of Christ is found in them. How can you be made alive in Christ today, you might ask? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart everything I just said, that God raised him from the dead, the Bible says you will be saved. Well, one problem that we face is, you know, the the first part of that verse, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, we've turned confessing with our mouths into some kind of magic talisman. That it's just words. We just need to go around and get people to repeat that. We don't tell them the fullness of the gospel and what Jesus requires. If anyone comes after me, he must take up his cross. Deny himself and follow me. And so it just turns into a magic word. I've confessed Jesus as Lord. It's a rote program. I repeat it every day. It's a secret password. Hey, you know, here in the South, if I say Jesus is Lord, it gets me in with these people. But you know what confessing Jesus as Lord is predicated on? the second half of Romans 10, 9, that you believe it from your heart. And you can't force somebody to believe from their heart. That's a work of God. That's a work of conviction of the Holy Spirit over sin. I I can't say enough or do enough up here to shake you up and show you from the heart that you need a Savior. God does that work. It's a supernatural work. But I can just try to get you to repeat something after me and then send the report in to our denomination. We don't got one. And I'm glad because we got no reports to send. The only report we have is the fruit of a changed life that we see walking around here. And that's the fruit that comes after somebody has from the heart truly and desperately cried out to God for mercy because they know they're a sinner. So you can say that Jesus is God and you can say that Jesus is Lord and you can say that Jesus is Savior but all that turns on the personal pronoun. Is Jesus your God? Is Jesus your Lord? Is Jesus your Savior? Because if you don't have that in there then it means nothing. You from the heart have to call on Him as your Savior and Lord. Believe in it from the inside. Confessing it with your lips on the outside. And if you do, you will be saved. And you could have the hope that's promised in this first section that Christ rose and you can rise. Then we see in verse 23 that there is something else about the resurrection that's going to happen. Paul writes, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits after that. Those who are Christ's at His coming. So the second truth about the resurrection. Christ rose, we can rise. Christ will return and that's when we will rise. It goes from potentiality to actuality. For those who have already died in Christ and are asleep, they're just living in the days in between. But when Christ returns... And he has to return first. There's the first fruits word, 23. The resurrected one has to return. And after that, after Christ's return, at his second coming, then all of those who is trusted in him will rise. That each in his own order is Paul using some military language from his day, kind of a Roman cohort of soldiers where there is clearly a commander-in-chief and everyone puts themselves in order behind. Well, what's he trying to say there? If anybody's walking around... You know, saying they're resurrected, some false messiah, you don't believe them. Because you won't see any resurrected person until the resurrected one returns. Nobody is cutting Jesus in line. Get it? And we'll see his return. He was crystal clear about His return. In Matthew 24, He says, Just as lightning can be seen from the east to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be on the clouds of sky with power and great glory. There's some beautiful lightning around these parts. And no matter which way you're facing on a dark night, you could be facing where the lightning hits, You could be in the opposite direction. You're still going to see it light up the sky. You know, there's always that, well, if Jesus is going to return, you know, what if he comes back over Australia and I'm living in Hickory? You know, if you could see lightning hit from any which way, upside down or inside out, I think the Son of Man in his great and powerful return has your place on the planet figured out. You're not going to miss him. And if you're found in Christ, you're going to meet him. When He returns, you'll rise. And He'll be in that same form, that, that, that heavenly, bodily, resurrected form that He left in. Acts one eleven says the angels are talking to the disciples after Jesus went back up 40 days after His resurrection. And the, the angels are watching them. with their, They're staring into the sky. And they say, this Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you saw Him go. We're going to see him come back. I mean, unless we are asleep first. But otherwise, there's going to be no doubt about it. The only thing that might be doubted, and it was doubted here in this church, is, okay, what kind of body do we get? I mean, we get some glimpses of what his body was like after his resurrection. You know, he didn't need to open the stone. We already heard it in Matthew, right? The angels came and rolled it away. Not to let him out, but to let the witnesses in. He he just walked right through that thing. And then in the upper room. He just, the doors are locked, the disciples are hiding, and he just appears. Those are glimpses of what the resurrected body of Christ is like. And he's the first fruits. He's the first fruits of that. And then we are going to be coming after that, raised from the dead in the same body. So look at verse 35. If you have 1 Corinthians 15 open in front of you, there was a a scoffer, a skeptic saying, oh yeah, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? Paul's loving response, you fool. Do you understand anything about something that has to die in order to come to life? Verse 37, that which you sow You do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain. I mean, it's like, look at nature. You ever see somebody, I mean, one of my most favorite places to visit on the planet is uh, Yosemite National Park in the the, uh, Redwood Forest, the Sequoia National Forest. You know, I've, I've never seen somebody cut down that 700 foot tall sequoia and dig out a really big hole in the ground and throw the whole tree in for another one to grow. What does it come from? Seed. And then you get this magnificent, awe-inspiring tree that's older than all of us put together. Maybe that's an exaggeration. But you're going to go and do your little raised garden, and you're going to buy all the seeds, and you're going to dump them out and mix them up and go, yeah, I don't know which are which now. What are you going to have to wait for? the harvest to come in. All look the same on this side of it and all rather unimpressive little seeds, aren't they? But then the next thing you know, months from now over here, you got a watermelon. Over here, you got some corn. But you back that thing up a few months and you just had seeds. So he's saying, you who are a skeptic of what this resurrected body is going to be like, don't you know how nature works? That which you sow, you don't sow the end form, you sow the beginning form. And that should get us really interested and excited about the heavenly body that we're going to get. Go down to verse 40. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. The glory of the heavenly is one and the glory of the earthly is another. So there's a heavenly body we're going to need to what? To be in heaven. It's going to be fit for heaven. It's going to be perfect for there. Look at verse 50. It says, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, and the perishable can't inherit the imperishable. We're going to have to be changed, transformed somehow to be fit for heaven. What's the change going to look like? Well, he gives us a few pointers. Look at verse 42. He says, so is the resurrection of the dead. There's differing glories, a heavenly glory of a body and an earthly glory of a body. So first he says, um, let's just talk about perishability. What we're living in now is a perishable body, but it'll be raised imperishable. It's a body, a perishable body is one that can be corrupted, one that can rot, one that can pull a hamstring when he's 42 trying to chase his son out in the yard. That's a corrupted body. It's, it's, it's organic. It'll break down just like that organic food you sp- pay for at uh, Whole Foods that's rotten by the time you even pull in your driveway. So organic, just... <laughs> That's perishable and we all have perishable bodies. Got me interested thinking about just how perishable we are. Like, when does it start breaking down? And so as I normally do, then I jump on the internet and I find some quasi scientific article and one was called the age you peak at everything. I was just curious. It says there our peak brain processing power is at age 18. Sorry, friends. Some of you are like, yeah, I've known that about my spouse for like 30 years now. <laughs> Unfortunately, it says that our, our peak, as, as some people in this survey responded, our peak wisdom doesn't come to our 60s. So there's a large gap between IQ and the real stuff. That's why you love having your 18-year-old home from college, don't you? They, they've peaked in their brain processing power. They know it all. We peak at age 22 in remembering names, praise God. So if you meet me in a few weeks and you've already met me and I'm giving you that stare, I'm just going to say age 22. (laughs) And that's your cue to tell me your name for the fifth time, because my name remembering capacity peaked at age 22. But this is what I was really getting at. Muscle strength, according to scientists, peaks around 25 or 26 we got perishable bodies it's going downhill i remember i was sitting in a sermon at age like 26 27 thinking i was still peak and i remember it was a sermon it was it was a church that had a large college ministry and young adult ministry with a lot of single people in it and i remember this about the sermon at one point he just looks at us and says hey guys you're not getting any better looks you're going downhill Now, I didn't have any scientific evidence, but something convicted me that if I'm not getting any better looking, I better start looking because I had peaked and, uh, you know, the proof is now in the pudding. I met Shannon at 28 and it's been downhill for her ever since, but, you know, got as close as I could to that peak strength. You know, that last part that I found humorous and interesting is the question they asked these people in the survey but when did you feel satisfied with your body? Because we're talking about the perishable body and um, the peak age of satisfaction or happiness with our bodies, for women it was age 74 and for men it was 80. And I thought about that and I think it's just, that's the point where the facts don't lie anymore. You're just looking going, this is what it is. I'm accepting reality. The perishable, that which is corruptible, which is perishing, it'll be raised imperishable. Maybe the question that follows, at least your kid's going to ask you today, is so what, how old will we look when we get to heaven? Clearly 25. I mean, that's peak strength. And it's close to peak brain processing power, so maybe 22. But we don't know. All we know is that we'll have something imperishable. And that's just the the outside physicality. He starts there. Look at verse 43. It is sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown natural. It's raised spiritual. Putting all that stuff together, he's saying, look, the glory that's to come and the new body that we're going to get, it is empty of all of those things that are beyond just physical corruption. The sin nature in us is gone. No longer in dishonor. We will now be glorious in our ability to honor God. That even our bodies won't work against us. In our flesh. Because we are led to sin by our flesh. We're tempted in the flesh. That's why we're called not to walk according to the flesh in Galatians 5. You struggle with walking according to the flesh? Versus the Spirit? Welcome to the Christian faith. And he's saying that will go away with that dishonor, that weakness. You'll be replaced with glory and power as in you will be able to perfectly love God. Mind, body, and soul. So your body is awesome but it's your heart and your will and your mind that at all times is now perfectly tuned into the God that created you. Never having to second guess or doubt your motives again or the thought that just popped into your head. You will only be able to think and act and speak and do that which pleases God. That's what you're going to get. So those are all the hopes of us rising and that's all going to be because if you had to summarize that and that was a long walk for a short drink of water that'll be the fullness of a believer being conformed to the image of Christ I know that's what we're trying to strive after here that's part of the process of sanctification and I know that none of us are probably satisfied with where we are in that but we can take some hope that we will ultimately and finally and forever be conformed to the image of Christ. What a glorious hope and promised. And I hope for those in here today whose bodies are broken, hurting, you're weak, you feel restricted, maybe not just in your body, but in your in your soul, in your mind and you're discouraged, I hope this brings you hope, because you will one day be exactly the way God created you to be, Amen. completely absent of sin and all corruption, and be able to honor the Lord perfectly. That's, that's fact number two. Christ will return, and we will rise. And then the last fact, which is, you know, it's out of this world, because to try to think about all this happening in the last section, verses 24 to 28, this is not just Christ coming uh, back and returning and us being changed, but he is going to come back to reign and in this new heaven and new earth that's been redeemed, free from all sin, free from uh, all evil spirits, all demons, the devil, all of that, all of that gone, we'll live with them forever like that. And that's hopeful. It's paradise regained, it's back to the garden. Verse 24, then comes the end. So all these things are in order. First, Christ rose. Second, Christ will return. And now, verse 24, now comes the end when Christ will reign. When He hands over the kingdom. Everything, everything in all creation, He will be able to give back to God His Father because He's abolished anything that opposes God. It says it right there. Any rule, any authority, any power, He will reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. Back to Genesis 3. The snake crusher putting out of its misery all of the miserable things in creation. Done forever. Gone. All enemies, foreign and domestic, seen and unseen, will be dealt with by Christ's second coming. No enemy of God will escape his judgment, and it's a judgment that is final. That should give us pause. Uh, There's no second chance here. It is second coming. There will be no quarter with Christ. Hebrews 9, 27 and 28 says that it's appointed for men to die once and after the judgment. Christ will appear a second time for salvation, but without reference to sin. As in he, He came the first time with reference to sin. He came to save sinners. But in His glorious second coming he's coming for judgment only to to rescue us for sure for us to reign with him but the finally as it says here put all his enemies under his feet and that should give us pause because there's no second chance at that point that's when the sea will give up the dead death and hades will give up the dead and all will be judged according to their deeds And then Revelation 20, 14, then even death in Hades, Hades being the place of the dead. Anything related to death, which is related to sin, will be done away with, abolished forever. It says the last enemy, the final enemy that will be abolished, annihilated, completely wiped out is death. Sin's gone. When sin's gone, death is gone. There's no curse left. This is the kingdom that God originally intended and the son is now giving it back to the father that's what 27 and 28 are about because there's something that's been going on here behind the scenes that we really don't have minds to comprehend but we can we can enjoy thinking about it that this whole thing is far more than anything about us it's about God the father and God the son and God the spirit who have existed forever together in perfect love And for the Father to receive all praise and honor and glory somehow from eternity past and into eternity future, He gets more praise and more honor and more glory from more of His creation, even that creation that was once corrupted and has now been redeemed. And so He sends His Son on the mission to win back the redeemed. And Christ does it by the end. And that's who you are in Christ. Christ. You have the privilege, if you're in Christ, to be part of the redeemed. Can you imagine that? Can you fathom that? The plan of the Father and the Son and the Spirit from eternity past, if you're in Christ today, included you. There's nothing more amazing than to be a Christian. And I don't say that with any amount of arrogance or pride. I say that as pure privilege. To be a Christian, to be in Christ. To be part of the redeemed, to be part of those who will honor and praise and glorify God forever is not something that anyone could ever do for themselves except be a recipient. And when you have experienced the grace of God, you live your life with gratitude. Thank you, Father, that you would consider me and you would send your son to die for me. That's how it's all going to end. Verse 27 references Psalm 110 which David wrote and Jesus referenced and Paul's referring to here that the Lord said to my Lord David is seeing a vision even in Psalm 110 prophesying that here is God the Father and God the Son interacting and God the Father has given a redeemed people to be one back and then when Jesus does that when he puts all things in subjection he gives it back to the Father Now there's a little clarifier that Paul has to write for those of us who want to ask one of these kind of real theological questions. Look at verse 27. He has put all things in subjection under his feet. And somebody might say, wait, so does that mean that God the Father, if he gave all things to be subject to Christ, all means all, that means that God the Father is now subject to Christ. Division in the Trinity? Father against Son? No. He's saying, look, all things are put in subjection. It is evident, as in uh, slow down theologian, it's evident that he, speaking to the Father, is accepted, who put all things in subjection to his son Jesus. That's what 27 is about. But 28 is the grand finale, of all grand finales. Like a good fireworks show saves the best for last, because the best last thing that we get a glimpse of in the resurrection, in the end, is that God is getting all honor and glory and praise. That's what 28 is. When all things have been subjected to God, then the Son himself will be subjected to the one, God the Father, who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. That's how it all ends. Christ's last enemy defeated. The final victory won. The people of God redeemed. The Lord Jesus Christ exalted. Turns to His Father and gives the Father what He's due. Everything. All blessing and all honor and all glory and all praise to the Father forever. That's how it ends. That's heaven. And that will never end. Can't really fathom it, can we? We just get little glimpses of it, little hopes of it. And it's too good to be true. So it seems. Because this, you know, we we keep using this at the end, at the end. But the reality is, folks, that ending in verse 28, when when Christ has redeemed all of God's creation to give back to him, that ending is just chapter one. And we live forever in the rest of that book. That's what's really mind-blowing, isn't it? I mean, you get to this ending and then it's like, wait, it was just the beginning? Yeah, it was just the beginning because this life is so short. And that's why the gospel is so, and that words fail me, but so important to tell. Because it's, it's eternal. It's never going to go, it's, it's never going to end. Spending it either with God forever or apart from Him. It's the greatest ending ever. My favorite theologian writing about the ending is Jonathan Edwards. You may know of him from Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God and he gets a bad uh, rap because of that. But he wrote much more on heaven than he did on hell. His mind was caught up into heaven and the favorite thing I've ever read that he wrote, heaven is a world of love and in it he wrote this. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. It's better than fathers and mothers husbands and wives children or the company of any friends because these are but shadows but the enjoyment of god is the substance these are scattered beams but god is the sun these are streams but god is the fountain these are drops but god is the ocean does that get you excited for heaven today to to look at the best That you have ever experienced in this life. Just the greatest moments. If you can for a moment in in your mind's eye. In in your heart. Just if you could think of the greatest moments of your life. The most most love. The most joy. And say that's just a drop in an ocean of what heaven will be forever. You can't fathom it can you? But you can put your hope in it. Because it's promised. It's a fact. That's how it's going to go. Christ will reign forever. And you'll live forever with Him. And so we stop here today and and we, none of us, can grasp this perfectly. But if we did, it would spoil some of the fun. Because we have to be able to see this with eyes of faith. And we really have to look out to the horizon like some of you did this morning and you saw the dawn breaking and, and when you see the dawn breaking... It gives you that glimmer of hope of the sun that's coming up that day. And at the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you see the dawn of all eternity breaking and it's in the sun, Christ. And just seeing him is enough. So now to him who's able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think. That's how we ought to think about heaven when we stop thinking about it, right? Wherever you're... Thoughts stopped about heaven, He can do far more abundantly beyond all you could ask or think. According to the power that works within us, that's resurrection power. To Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning. You have revealed from Your Word truths too amazing for us to fully comprehend Oh, the depths and the riches and the wonder of the wisdom of God. How unsearchable those riches are for us today. But it doesn't mean we can't try to look with eyes of faith. And to see in the breaking of the dawn of that day, we see the risen Christ. We see him now with eyes of faith reigning at your right hand, interceding for us even in this moment. Interceding for those he is calling to himself this morning to put their faith in him so that they could have life everlasting. Only your spirit can do that work. And we thank you for it. We praise you for it. That we would, this morning, behold our Savior and be encouraged because of it. In his name we pray, amen.